All right, I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church this morning, specifically to our continuing study of the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Join with me as I pray, and we're going to ask God to bless the preaching of His Word today. Let's pray. Father, we come to You with praise, Lord, on our lips today, joyful in our salvation that You have provided for us in Christ, Your only Son, crucified in our place, Lord. God, we thank You for Your kindness to us today that, Lord, it is because of You and it is by Your grace that we stand in this place today, Lord. You are the One who gives us life. It's, it's because of You, Lord, that we live and move and have our being, God. And You've been gracious to us today, God. You've granted us life. You've been gracious to us today, Lord, by giving us Your Word. God, thank You for being a God who reveals Himself, and not a God whom we have to find, but a God who seeks us out. Lord, thank You today that we don't have to ascend to heaven to bring Christ down or descend into the abyss to bring Christ up. Lord, You have brought Your Word very near to us. You've given us Your Word, Lord. You're a God who reveals Himself, God. And we have this book in front of us today, and they're, they're, they're words breathed out by You, Lord, and they're profitable, God. And we ask that You would give, give us help today, Lord, as we hear the preaching of Your Word. God, make it profitable to our soul. Lord, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters today, and we ask that you would feed us as your children, feed us with your word, and I pray especially today for the discouraged in our midst, Lord, the downcast. God, I pray that you would drive back that discouragement today, Lord, and that you would bring forth confidence in Christ, and we ask you to do this, Lord, through the preaching of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 14, we are continuing our study today of the, what's called the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, and as we dive into chapter 14, I want to remind us that Luke has been highlighting one of the things that's been a consistent theme is in chapter 13 and chapter 14 are the difficulties that Paul and Barnabas face on the mission field. That's something that keeps coming up over and over. And by the time we make our way to uh, chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas have gone through some significant hardships. I want us to remember back when we were told that they lost a co-worker in Christ. There was a, a man that was co-laboring with them. A man that they loved, John Mark, and all of a sudden one of their co-laborers leaves. He abandons the mission. And that was a shot unexpected shot of discouragement. And then we find out last week, Ron preached to us that they were kicked out of a city. Uh, so raise your hand today if you've ever been kicked out of a city for Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what these men were in Antioch of Pisidia. They were driven out of a city. And so what we're being, being given, this information, is that they're getting discouragements from without. Discouragements from within, and these are hardships, okay? And one of the things that we need to remind ourselves is that the book of Acts is not for missionaries, okay? Well, let me clarify that. 
it's not just for missionaries. So this, this is not a story merely just, it's not a one-dimensional thing to teach you how to be a missionary. This book has given us to know how to live the Christian life. And what that means is that the hardships that we see coming into the apostles on the mission field, these are an illustration of all the different kinds of hardships and difficulties that can land on us as Christians. Okay? And if we're not instructed from God's Word to know what to do when hardship comes, then it has the ability and the capacity to bring us into a state of debilitating discouragement. That unless we're instructed from God's Word to know how to respond and what to do when things get very difficult, we can become tremendously discouraged, yes, even as Christians, even as followers of Christ. These discouragements can land on us and erode our confidence in Christ, erode the joy of our salvation. And it can even be so severe in a Christian that they want to quit and give up and stop following Jesus. See, a perfect example of this in the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. Discouragement lands on him to such the degree that this man, holy man, asks God, I want to die. I want to get out of here. I'm done with this. And so we want to lean into these stories because what we're seeing is time after time, discouragement comes and they faithfully endure it. They faithfully press on. They faithfully persevere. And we want to, we want to take heed. We want to do the... We want to do likewise. And so we're going to lean into this text in Acts 14. And the story picks up a hundred miles away from Antioch. They're driven out of that city. And the story zones in on two separate cities called Iconium and Lystra. And what we're going to see is that this theme of bumping into opposition and hardship keeps showing up on this first missionary journey. Let's read our passage together beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. It says, Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia and the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the Gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was, a, he was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, seeing that he had the faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, "'Stand upright on your feet!' And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconium, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. 
And the priest, uh, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowds, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet He did not leave Himself without witness, for He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Verse 19, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derba. This is God's Word to Grace Community Church today. And it speaks to us about hardships. And we want to hear it. And we want to be instructed from God's Word to know how to respond to hardships and difficulties in the Christian life. In our passage today, we have three different glimpses. First, we see these men run into opposition in Iconium. And then we see they run into a, a different type of opposition. It's paganism false religion in Lystra. And then at the end of our text, we're going to close with a glimpse of the Apostle Paul being stoned almost to death for Jesus Christ. And so this is where we're headed this morning. Let's start in verse 1. And things actually start out um, in Acts 14 on the upswing. And they start out on a positive note. In verse 1, we're told that great numbers of people believe the Gospel. That they go into this city and they begin to announce and, and, and people believe. And not only that, great numbers of people believe. Both Jews and Greeks. Now I want us to pause right there and I want us to notice something that Paul says in, uh, Luke says in verse 1. Okay? And I find this very interesting because the tone of the book of Acts over and over, Luke pauses and he highlights what we would call the sovereignty of God in human salvation. And so think about that passage that, that Ryan preached last week. As many as who were appointed to eternal life believed. And so Luke is drawing our attention to a sovereign God over the response of people to the Gospel. But it is interesting that he does the exact opposite thing in verse 1. That in verse 1, he emphasizes the other side of that coin. As sovereign as God is in salvation, there are human instruments. Okay? And the sovereign Lord of all, the sovereign God of all, has ordained to use human instruments. Specifically in verse 1, we are told that he has ordained to use human speech. Human speech. It is a great false conclusion 
okay, called hyper-Calvinism to conclude that because God is sovereign over all, we don't need to preach the gospel anymore. That's a biblical misfire. And the Bible holds, up, holds out both things, human instruments and a sovereign God. And what we're told in verse 1 is that human beings speak in such a way that people believe. Now I want you to imagine that. Imagine someone describing a sermon that you preach like that. So and so, you just preach the sermon in such a way that people believe. He's highlighting the effectiveness of, of the Holy Spirit on a Christian's speech. And is this not an encouragement to you? Okay? That as we begin to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that we don't have to do that on our own. That the Spirit of God can so rest upon our words and our gospel preaching, listen closely, we can speak in such a way that people believe. And I hope you're praying for that as a member of Grace Community Church. I hope every one of us is praying for that. Lord, not only for opportunities to share the gospel, but not only for opportunities to sow, but Lord, give us opportunities to reap. Let us speak in such a way that people Believe, I find this very interesting. God is sovereign over all, sovereign in all of salvation, but He, he ordains human instruments and human speech blessed and made effective by the Holy Spirit. So this was the beginning. Men are speaking the Gospel in the power of the Spirit. Great numbers of people are responding. And then verse 2 shows us that just as quickly as a great number believe, there arises a great opposition in verse 2. And in fact, we jump ahead to verse 4, we're told that this opposition is so widespread that the entire city is divided. Now that's interesting language. And that's a powerful message that has made its way into this city. That, that message comes into this city and it splits the entire city into two. Some with the apostles and some with the Jews. So, we transition. And I want you to get both glimpses of this. So, in verse 1, Luke is showing us the effectiveness of gospel speech. The effectiveness of the speech of Christians. And then he goes directly in verse 2, and he shows us the effectiveness of the speech of unbelievers. Both have power. A different kind of power and, and power to a different ends, but he presents both uh, forms of human speech as effective. And so look at verse 2. Not only was the speech of believers effective, verse 2 tells us that the false doctrine in Iconium landed like poison on human minds. That it wasn't neutral. You've heard this phrase maybe growing up, Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. The Bible disagrees with that. Okay? Demonic lies have power. They actually accomplish demonic things. And we get a glimpse of that here. Demonic speech, religious lies are landing like poison on human minds. So I would encourage us, don't downplay the power of lies. Don't downplay that stuff. Don't, don't, don't sit back and say, oh, that's, that's powerless. It has a demonic power to it. 
And the apostles knew that, which is why we read in verse 3, so, so, now that's an interesting thing, so because of that in verse 2, they remained, verse 3, a long time. Now think about those two jumps right there, okay? Because typically, here's how we think, ministry is going real good, things are really, really good, therefore stay a long time, okay? Things are really difficult, things are really bad, and the disposition is, oh, probably time to move on and serve Jesus somewhere else. But what they concluded was the exact opposite. It was precisely because of this demonic opposition, this false doctrine, this poison that was being unleashed in this city, that these leaders said, we got to stay here. we got to raise up a resistance in this city. we got to preach the truth and tear down these lies in Iconium. So they stayed for a long time. Verse 3, they're speaking boldly for the Lord. And so the strategy has always been, how do we resist lies? How do we resist false doctrine? The strategy has always been bold preaching of God's Word. Okay, And that's something just the sidebar in your own heart, in your own mind, as things get difficult, you need to learn that you're going to be tempted to cover your head and hide from fights and difficulties and hardships. And what we got to learn to do is reach over and pick up the sword and start swinging it. And start preaching God's Word and resisting the devil. This is exactly what we see them doing. Bold Gospel preaching in Iconium. I want to point out three things about the Gospel that we see in that first paragraph. This is the Gospel that they're preaching. And the first thing I want to highlight to us, just as a reminder, is that this was a message of grace. Okay, So when we say that they stayed a long time and they boldly preached the Gospel, what were they saying? What's some characteristics of that message? And the first one I want to point out is grace. We see that in verse 3. That the gospel so identifies with the grace of God that one of the names of the gospel is the word of His grace. That's one of the, that's one of the names. That's like a synonym. Gospel and word of His grace. The word of the grace of God. And this is really important for us to get. Every person in the room. Okay, Why in the world when Satan unleashes his poison, why in the world will we begin to speak about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And I want, to, I, want us, I want us to see this, that this is the dividing line between true and false religion. Satanic religion is always works righteousness. Always. In some form, in some degree, it always is a presentation of human merit, human righteousness. If you do this, you will be fine. And every single time, it will end in sinners being condemned before God, the holy judge. So Satan's gospel is works righteousness. But the apostles remain in this city and they begin to preach the message of grace. And grace is the exact opposite message of works righteousness. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn just a few pages forward to the book of Romans chapter 4. And I want us to get a glimpse of how antithetical these things are. How completely opposite. 
grace is from works. These are two paths, two different ways of relating to the one true God. And Jesus taught us about these paths in the Sermon on the Mount. One is narrow and it leads to life. One is broad and it leads to destruction. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 4, verse 4. He says this, Now to the one who works. Okay, So this is somebody who's chosen the broad path that leads to destruction, that path of works. Here's what he says, If that's your choice, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So the Apostle Paul is telling you in Romans 4, if that's the decision that you want to make to relate to the one true God on the basis of human merit and human works, you need to know God's not going to give you grace. God is going to pay you wages. Okay, He's not going to give you a gift. He's going to pay you what you deserve. Later in the book of Romans, we're told exactly what that is. Romans 6, verse 23 if that's the decision that a human being makes, that path of works, that path of merit, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of our sin is death. If this is your decision, God is going to pay you what you deserve. He's going to pay you, not with eternal life, but with eternal death. So that's one path. Okay? And then He introduces us to the other path. Romans 4, verse 5. He says this, To the one who does not work. So this person has chosen the other path. This is the satanic route. This is the path of Christianity and the gospel. To the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So he tells us that the path of grace is over here. The message of Jesus that you can't do it. You are not able to obey God to such the degree that He would reward you and merit you with eternal life. You can't be good enough for that. You can't be. And and not only that, even if you obey God perfectly for the rest of your life, you can't atone for the sins that you've already committed. You're toast on the works road. You are toast. You are condemned by God. But the good news of the Gospel is over here. It's the message of grace. That through Christ, God has promised to deal with us not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. That His righteousness can be credited to us. This is the message of grace. This is what they were preaching. The Word of His grace. And they're confronting false religion with this message. Now I want to say this. I've been hearing you know, just a little bit of this creep up just in my own relationships with different people. One of the subtle tactics of Satan, subtle tactics, when we begin to lay out this huge contrast between grace and works, Satan is tricky. He's deceitful. And one of the things he does and will do is he will actually turn faith into a work. And you hear people talking like this sometimes about uh, who do you think Jesus is? Or, or brother, have you responded to the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you repented? Do you believe? And sometimes you'll hear people say things like this, and especially children. Especially children. Satan will come at you and distort the Gospel. 
And you'll hear them say things like this, well, I'm trying to believe. I'm trying to believe. As though faith were something that you have to try really hard to do. As though faith were something that you have to sweat to accomplish. Do you see how deceitful that is? Turning faith into a work. Okay? Faith is not like that. It's not something that you try really hard to do. It's like a thirsty man drinking water. Okay? Faith in Jesus Christ is like a tired man resting in Christ. An exalted, exhausted man resting. Rest in Jesus. Don't let, don't let Satan distort faith and make it a work. The Gospel is a word about the grace of God in Christ. Second, it was a message backed by the power of God. Backed by the power of God. You see this in verse 3, that God confirmed this message with signs and wonders. Now, one of the things that we can be wrongly tempted to do in our context is conclude things like this. Well, my Gospel must be deficient because when I go preach the Gospel at Jackson State or the abortion clinic or in my workplace, people aren't jumping out of wheelchairs. So, my Gospel must be deficient because my Gospel isn't being confirmed with the signs and wonders that we read about in Scripture. And I want to help us to think through that. Okay? And one is a historical argument. And this is interesting to me. Um, John Calvin has a famous work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Okay? And in the preface of The Institutes, we learn about um, one, of the, one of the things that's happening in the Reformation. And one of the things that happens in the Protestant Reformation is the Roman Catholic Church, part of their defense, part of their attack toward the Reformers, this is so interesting, is they said this, where are your miracles? Why is your doctrine not being confirmed by miracles? That was their, that was their defense. Of you're, you're, you're talking about this restoration movement, but you don't have any miracles. And, it, and it's, it's really interesting that the Roman Catholic Church, the false church, they can trace supposed miracles from the time of the apostles, the post-apostolic period, through the medieval period, and even to the modern day, of people that we know did not hold to a biblical gospel, yet supposedly did miracles. That's a Roman Catholic claim. And so when we hear about charismania today, and charismaniac Christianity, of unless you do this stuff, unless you have the dynamite going off, when you preach the Gospel and people are jumping out of wheelchairs, your Gospel is deficient. I want us to understand that's the same exact argument that the Roman Catholic Church, the false church, has had for over a thousand years. Okay? Where is your miracles? And in his preface to the Institutes, John Calvin, um, it's, it's interesting, his response is interesting, and I think his lo logic is rock solid. And his response to the Roman Catholic Church was, listen, if we were preaching new doctrine, if we were preaching new revelation from God, we would expect that God would confirm and seal that revelation with signs and wonders and miracles. But since we are not, since we are merely preaching the same Gospel that Christ preached, same Gospel that the Apostles preached, our Gospel has already been confirmed not only by the resurrection of Christ, 
but also by the signs and wonders done during the apostolic period. And I want to encourage you with that. When you go preach the Gospel, you don't take a deficient message. You are preaching the message that has already been confirmed with the resurrection of Christ and all kinds of miracles in the apostolic age. This is a message of power. Third, it was a message that divided. We read that phrase in verse 4 that the whole city was split in half by the Gospel. Now, I want you to be honest for just a second. Just evaluate yourself. Because sometimes definitions of the world can creep into the way that Christians think. And one of the things that can be very easily distorted is grace. Okay? And we want to have a biblical definition of grace. And so here's my question for you. Does your version of grace allow for this? The grace of God The Word of grace, the message of grace, is what divided a city. Do you know that that's one of the attributes of grace? It produces division. It splits humanity into two separate groups. Those who respond to Jesus and those who do not respond to Jesus. In fact, it seems like the Gospel does this in almost everywhere it goes in the book of Acts. That no one remains neutral. It splits the city in half. And so we can have some wrong definitions about sharp disagreements about doctrine and theology and the the wrong definitions come in and say, that's not gracious. No, the grace of God does produce a division. It does. It splits into true and false religion. Now, as this opposition in Iconium increases to the point of a murder plot, they flee. Paul and Barnabas flee. They they get out of town. So, you know, uh, Satan starts speaking lies and slander, and they stay for a long time, and then all of a sudden they catch wind of, we're about to smash your brains out with rocks, and they say, we're out of here. Okay? And I love this comment from Kent Hughes. He says, these men were courageous but they were not fools. They were born again, but they were not born yesterday. And so they flee. They leave Iconium, and they go to Lystra, and they begin to preach the Gospel. They continue to preach the Gospel, and they run into a different kind of opposition. This time, it's paganism. Okay, False, heathen religion. Again, in verse 8, Things start on the positive note. Things begin on the upswing. Okay? And in verse 8, Paul is used to perform a notable miracle. There was a man crippled from birth in verse 8. He is listening to Paul preach. Verse 9. Okay? And then we are told that this man, Paul realized that this man had the faith to be made well. And if you look at the footnote of the ESV, I think the better translation here is he had the faith, the Greek word is to be saved. Okay, So he's hearing the message that Paul is preaching about Jesus Christ and he believes it. He believes that Jesus can save him. Okay, So he preaches the Gospel. The man is believing the message about Jesus. And then we are told that God sovereignly grants that a sign would be done on this particular occasion. A sign. 
Now, we've talked about this before, but I think it's worth a reminder that the word sign is interesting, okay? Because it goes further than the word miracle or the word uh, power, okay? It goes further than that. It's not less than that, but it does tell us more. And you could even say it like this, that signs are miracles with a meaning. They point somewhere. They point beyond themselves. These are signs. And we see this especially in the book of John, that he gives us uh, a series of seven signs that Jesus does that are to provoke us to believe on Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. So these are signs. They point away from themselves. Now, I don't mean they're allegorical. They really happen. They are literal, physical acts, mighty works of God in the physical realm. But they illustrate even greater works of God in the spiritual realm. And I want us to understand and see that happening in Acts 14. This is a sign. When this man believes the Gospel, the Lord grants that this sign be done. Luke has already used the healing of a crippled man to illustrate the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And he did that earlier in Acts chapter 3. Okay? So when the Gospel was first going out to the Jews, he, he illustrated the power of that Gospel with a healing account that a man who was born uh, lame was healed. And then as soon as the Gospel goes out to the Gentiles, boom, another healing account where a man who was born lame is healed through the power of Christ. And Luke's point is this. Okay? He's showing us the sign points beyond itself, and he's showing us that all humanity, listen, both Jews and Gentiles, are like this crippled man, lame from birth. This is an illustration of who we are apart from Christ. Of who we are apart from the Gospel. We are dead in our sins. We have spiritual inability. Okay, We are spiritually lame. And make sure you grab this part. From birth. From birth. This is who we are by nature because of sin. And he presents that the Gospel of Jesus is the only thing that can rescue us from this condition. Jesus Christ is the only one who can heal us from this spiritual lameness. Only through the power of Jesus. And so you have this mighty physical work being done. A real uh, paralyzed man is now walking. Never walked before in his life. But our gaze is to be pointed beyond that of this is what the Gospel of Jesus does. This is what it does. This is our only hope. The good news of the Gospel, the spiritually lame can be completely healed in Jesus Christ. And that was the entire point of this sign that we see in Acts 14. And so, the crowds gathered up and they see this sign uh, given, this sign accomplished, through these human instruments. And the purpose for which God gave that sign is to cast everybody's gaze toward Christ. Toward the power of Christ. The power of the Gospel of Christ. But we're told that these pagan people, they mistook the power of God for the power of the messengers. They misinterpreted the sign. 
The sign was saying, look this way. Look to Jesus. And they misinterpreted it and they looked to men instead of Christ. And they gave glory to men when, they should have, when the only glory was to be given to the one true God. The men were just the instruments. Verse 11, they say the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So, it's hard to imagine a, a, a more radical twisting of the Gospel than preaching the message of Jesus. Christ crucified for your sins. Christ resurrected. His promises are true. All authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the God-man seated at the right hand of God. And a miracle be granted. And, and the crowds respond, Oh, you're gods. The whole time they've been exalting Jesus Christ and the Gospel is radically distorted. Again, this is a work of Satan. This is a work of Satan. This is a satanic deception. Okay? Paul and Barnabas begin charging these men with blasphemy. That's what it means when they tear their clothes. That you've engaged in blasphemy and idol worship. And he begins to teach them about idolatry and charge them about idolatry and even warn them about idol worship. Look at verse 15. He, he has this curious phrase and part of, part of what he says when he runs and, and he says, stop, don't do this, is he says, we are men with a nature like you. Why would you worship something that's like you? Okay? And with that phrase, he pulls back the veil on idolatry. Idolatry is always like that. Okay? Idolatry is always making a supreme object of devotion or affection out of things like humans, out of created things. Things that are made instead of things that are unmade. Creatures instead of the Creator who is blessed forever. This is idolatry. The glory that belongs to the one true God the one true Creator is being given to men with a nature like yourself. Pathetic things in comparison to this glorious God. So this is idolatry. Now, one of the things that I know is that we are tempted when we hear about idolatry in our Western context, in our modern context in America, that we're tempted to hear about that and put way too much space between us and idolatry than we should. And the, and the thoughts go something like this. Well, they're literally worshiping false Greek gods here. That's they out there. But we, civilized people, we modern men and women, we don't do that. Therefore, we don't commit idolatry. Therefore, we are not idol worshipers. And I want to warn us that that would be a grave mistake. That we read this and we feel safer than we should. I'll never forget a family member of mine. You know, talking about the sinfulness of sin. And in ignorance of what God's Word says and teaches, they tell me, Dustin, I've never committed idolatry one time in my entire life. And statements like that reveal a broken way of thinking. We don't understand what God's Word calls idolatry. 
And so what I want to do for just a moment is I want to show us the broadness with which the Scripture speaks of this sin called idolatry and idol worship. And this is going to be tremendously helpful for you not to feel safer than you actually should. Okay? Scripture's broadness as it deals with idol worship. If you have your Bibles, turn back to the prophet Habakkuk. Towards the end of the Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk. And I want you to find Habakkuk chapter 1. And so I want us to tear down the false way of thinking with the Scriptures, with God's Word. Okay? And in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 11, he speaks about guilty men. Okay? Guilty men. Not innocent men, guilty men. Now I want you to listen to this phrase. These are men whose own strength is their God. Their own might is their God. Now that's interesting because we're not talking about totem poles and Hindu idols. Word of God just said these men are worshiping themselves, specifically their own might, their own strength. So apparently... When the Bible condemns idol worship, it doesn't just mean the overtly outward forms, it also condemns these more subtle inward forms of things that are worshipped other than the one true God. Habakkuk goes on in verse 13 to condemn men, listen closely, who offer, a man who offers sacrifices, and then listen, to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. This is a man's vocation. The way he makes a living and provides for his family and buys the stuff that he wants. And the Word of God says he's making offerings to it. Making sacrifices to it. So there's just two examples. Buried in the Old Testament. That you can worship yourself and your own strength as God. That you can worship your vocation, the way that you get the things that you want as your God. This is idol worship and idolatry. And what that means in our modern Western context, any human being who lives like this, your own strength and your own way of thinking your own thoughts, your own rationale, your own might is your final authority, you're an idol worshiper according to Scripture. You bow down and worship false gods when you serve yourself in the place of the one true God. And so be very, very careful from feeling more insulated from this sin than we actually are. And in addition to that, if you are the type of person that lives for the here and now, that your life revolves around things in this world and not things to come, things like riches and pleasure and possessions and get all you can, while you can get all you can, if that's what your life looks like, then you've been indicted by the prophet Habakkuk as an idol worshiper, as a worshiping false gods in place of the one true God. And what he tells us back in Acts chapter 14, verse 15, is if you would ever be saved, 
If there, if there would ever be any grace for you, if you would ever be redeemed, forgiven of your sin, it will never come, according to verse 15, unless you turn away from your false gods. This is the biblical word repent. You must repent. You must turn away. There is no salvation for anyone who does not turn away from serving and worshiping they're false gods. You must turn away from these vain things. That was the gospel. That was the, the good news. But it's not just about giving up on a, on a bunch of stuff that you like. Look at what he says in verse 15. Good news. Not just giving up stuff. You turn away from the vain, and then you turn to who he calls in verse 15, the living God. That's what conversion is. It's not losing anything. It's gaining God. It's gaining Christ. So being converted into Christ is, is going from living a counterfeit life, a pseudo life, things that do not matter from your entire life being a pile of sand to knowing the one true and the living God. This is the Gospel. This is His message in verse 15. And then he warns his audience. So he's teaching them about idolatry. He tells them that they must turn. And then he warns them, if you don't listen to me, you need to know something. Look at what he says in verse 17. The good provision of God towards His creatures, things like rain, things like fruitful seasons, things like food that God has given you, things like gladness that God has given you, all those things that the good Creator has provided to both the just and the unjust alike, He tells them that these kind acts of God will serve as witnesses for God against anyone who does not repent, who does not turn, who does not stop serving idols. And I want us to understand that. We have a description here of God not only as the one who made all things, one who made you, but He tells us God's been good to you. God has been good to all. And He tells us that those who refuse to repent are idol worshipers. And they will be charged with the most imaginable form of ingratitude. Not only did they not believe in the Creator God, but they didn't believe and turn to the good God, the God who has been good to you. Think about this. What sinner deserves to be provided for by the Creator of all, the King of all? Who deserves that? You spend your entire life in rebellion against God, and what's the disposition of God, the righteous King? Kind to all. I'll give you rain. I'll give you fruitful seasons. I'll give you food. And I'll do it as a witness. It's supposed to provoke you to worship Me and to thank Me for all My goodness towards you in spite of your sin. But if you don't turn, it'll be used as a witness against you. Notice that He says not only does God give us food, He also fills our hearts with gladness. Listen to this. It is only because of God's kind disposition to every human being that every single one of your days on planet earth are not absolutely miserable, 
filled with 100% of sorrow and no joy? Is there anything in your life that you like, that you enjoy, that, that makes you glad God's given you that? And all those kind gifts from this good God will serve as a witness to all who refuse to repent. And even with this warning, in verse 18, the crowd is barely restrained from offering sacrifices to these two men. And that gives us a glimpse of the power of idolatry. That's how much of a hold that it has on human hearts. That even apostles preaching the Word of God and they're barely even able to restrain them from false worship. And then I want us to notice in verse 19, things take an unexpected turn. And, and see if you can think about, you know, you just, just imagine reading this chapter for the first time. And this same crowd of people that is ready to worship Paul as a deity, two verses later, the same people pick up rocks and begin to try to kill him. So is that not a warning to us you know, about all kinds of things? The fickleness of human beings. Okay? And this is why you better not be living on the praise of men. One minute, you're, you're a hero. Next minute, you're a zero. And even more than that, one minute, you're one, we want to worship you. Next minute, we're about to kill you. Think about how miserable that is. If that's what you live for, the applause of men, the acceptance of men, and the praise of men. Christians don't do that. Christians live for the glory and honor of Christ. And this fear of man, praise of man, that's one of the specific things that's mentioned in Scripture to keep you from believing the Gospel. So you have this radical turn. And they attempted to kill Him and they thought that they did. In verse 19, we learn that they thought he was dead. And that means that they, uh, this was a bloody thing. They picked up stones and they chunked them at this man's body until he stopped moving. And discernibly, he wasn't even breathing. There was no, you know, just looking at him. He's sitting there unconscious within an inch of death. And they thought they killed him. So they drag him out of the city and leave him, um, leave him for dead. So I want to start, just think about this. A missionary co-laborer abandons Paul. Paul is kicked out of one city. Goes to the next city. They're trying to kill him. Kicked out of the next city. And then he's deified and worshipped as a false god. And then he is stoned to within an inch of his life. So we have a progression. Hardship, hardship, hardship. And even hardship in an ultimate form. And I want us to see Satan behind this. Satan resisting the gospel, resisting the church. I think one of the just details that point that out is that these Jews in verse 19 that come from Antioch, they make a 100 mile journey on foot just to put this man down. Now that's some motivation. I think that's some supernatural motivation that I'm about to go here a hundred miles away and I'm going to stop that gospel and I'm going to kill that man that keeps preaching the name of Jesus Christ. Satan wanted Paul dead. And then what, the, what verse 20 leaves us with is that he was overruled. Satan wanted him dead, but Satan was overruled. And we see that in three ways. First, 
Verse 20, Paul rose up. Church gathers around him and he rose up. That means he didn't die. He almost did, but he didn't. Okay? Jesus overruled Satan. Second, he entered the city. Now, would you do that? Does that sound a little weird to you? That you were just stoned within an inch of death in this city, dragged out of the city. Let's say you happen to wake up and the first thought that jumps in the mind is, is typically not, oh yeah, let's go back in. He enters the city. And that means he didn't give up. Okay, This is a man filled with courage, filled with boldness in Jesus Christ. And then we have one more glimpse. The next day, he travels to Derby. Now, not only you know, would your first move after you had been stoned and can barely breathe be to go back into the city that stoned you, think about your move the next day. Your next move would not be to wake up the next morning and take a 60-mile journey to another city to preach the Gospel. And so this, this is what we're seeing side by side with each other. Hardship, 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 and then enduring faithfully following Jesus Christ in the midst of hardship. And we want to ask ourselves, how do we follow Jesus like that? In the most difficult seasons of our life, how do we press forward and not quit? How do we continue to follow Christ? And I think this is the encouragement that this missionary journey holds out for us. And I think as we meditate on this, one of the reasons, if not the main reason, that we see Paul's endurance and Paul's faithfulness, I'm going to categorize it in two, two ways, is the man knew himself on the one hand, and he knew Christ on the other hand. And so think, think about that. What, what makes a man like this tick? What drives this man? And I'm submitting to you that he knows himself and that he knows Christ. And that grid can be tremendously helpful for you in tribulation, in hardship. When things get difficult, you need to know yourself and you need to know Christ rightly. You need to know yourself rightly and you need to know Christ rightly. And so let's consider this. Even in the hardest season of Paul's life, and arguably in a physical sense, up until the moment of his death, he never got closer to death than right here when he was stoned in Lystra. And yet, in the midst of that difficult season, he never lost sight of the fact of what God had done for him in Christ. Okay, So let's think about this. In the book of Acts, we don't have to rewind very many chapters to find out and, 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 to, and to remember that there was a time when Paul was on the other side of stoning Christians. Right now, Paul is having his body beat by rocks for faithfulness to Christ, but it wasn't too many years before this that Paul was the one involved with killing Christians. He was the one involved with sanctioning murder and having Christians dragged into the Sanhedrin and stoned for faithfulness to Christ. And so think about that. Do you think that, that crossed his mind in those moments when he was being stoned that he watched Stephen, the servant of Jesus, being pummeled by rocks. And in that moment, do you think he remembered of what God had done in his life? That he had been delivered from sin. That God had graciously converted him from sin. Another way to say this is he saw himself as that spiritual crippled man 
that had been healed through the Gospel of Christ. And the logic goes like this. The worst day that I have in Jesus Christ is better than the best day I had as a lost man dead in my sins. He knew Himself. He knew the gracious work that God has, had done in His heart and in His soul. But He also knew Christ. He knew Himself and He knew Christ. And he knew that no matter how difficult things got in his life, Jesus would never leave him. He knew that. In fact, on these very events, as an old man, Paul reflects back. On these very events, in the first missionary journey, he reflects back to his protege, Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, I want to invite you to turn there really quick and we'll finish up. 2 Timothy Chapter 3, I want you to see this. So the closest that Paul came to death before he actually died is in Acts 14, verse 20. And this is his commentary on these events. 2 Timothy 3, verse 11. He says to Timothy, You know, Timothy, verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So what I want you to notice, those three cities, Iconium, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, first missionary journey, Acts 13, Acts 14, the very same events that we're talking about in this first missionary journey, he says, I endured them all. And then he gives us this curious phrase, from every single one of them, the Lord delivered me. The Lord delivered me. So, he knew Christ. He knew that, that Christ would never leave him. Okay? And that he was confident that no matter what situation he found himself in, that there was deliverance for him to be had in Jesus. Paul's right there. What this is not is any kind of pivot towards a prosperity gospel. That nothing bad will ever happen to me because Jesus will deliver me. That is not what he's saying. He, just claim, he, he, he is not claiming that God delivered him from being stoned. We just read he was stoned within an inch of death. But his commentary back on this event is that even still, God rescued me. Not from being stoned, but through being stoned. And that's the promise of the Gospel that Christ has made to every Christian. We're not promised to be delivered from suffering in the sense that we will never suffer, but we are absolutely promised without fail that we will be delivered through suffering for God's glory. In fact, this is the exact same way that Romans 8 ends. And it, tell, it carries this truth to its ultimate conclusion that we cannot lose. No matter what happens to us, Christians cannot lose. Not in the ultimate sense. And at the end of Romans 8, he says this, we are being slaughtered all day long. What if that happened in your life? What if that happened at Grace Community Church? We are being slaughtered all day long. And his very next comment is, even in the midst of that, we are more than conquerors in Christ. 
It is impossible for us to be ultimately defeated. We cannot lose because Jesus will not leave us. He will deliver us. I love this phrase in Psalm 76, verse 10. We are told that on the final day and when it all shakes out, even the wrath of man shall be made to praise our sovereign God. That's how powerful He is. That He takes even hatred towards Him, even persecution towards Him and His church, and the promise of the Gospel is that even that will be made to praise and worship and honor the one true God, the sovereign God over all. What this means for us as followers of Christ is that every ounce of our difficulties, our hardships that we face, every single ounce of those difficulties will be used by our sovereign God for our good and for His glory. They will not be wasted. Christ will rescue us from every evil deed. This is the banner. This is the banner that we wave. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. This is Paul's, maybe his final written words in the New Testament. He says this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We need to know that Jesus will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to You and we thank You that You're a God that reveals reality to us, Lord. And that You tell us over and over again in Your Word that we're not to expect an easy life. God, and I think about how surprised we could be of hardships and trouble if we were never told those things in Your Word. Of how easily we could slip into false conclusions that that You don't love us, that You don't care for us, that You're not ruling over the world. So we thank You, Lord, for this insight that even in spite of difficulty, even in spite of hardship, and even in spite of persecution, You are Lord of all. You are Lord of all. And You will be exalted in every circumstance in Your church and in every situation in the life of every Christian. And so we ask You, Lord, to hold us fast. We ask You, Lord, to hold us fast as a local church. Cause us to pursue You with faithfulness, Lord. And we ask to be protected by the evil one in the difficult seasons that we must endure as followers of Jesus Christ. In Your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.